Welcome to the seventh class session of Fairy and Fantasy, and the last class on Sir Launfal. Today we will look at the aftermath of Launfal's lapse in judgment, and at his strangely irrelevant trial. Okay, uh, today's our last class on Launfal, and the first thing I want to sort of establish is looking at the trial, um, or sort of trials, it's kind of a several stage process of Launfal. Um, what exactly is at stake here? What's this trial about? What's he on trial for, exactly? Or maybe we should back up to his, like, what is the accusation before we look at the trial, but Beth, go ahead. Uh, supposedly Okay, uh, yeah, she, because she claims that he propositioned her, right, which, needless to say, she refused. Uh, good, so that, that's, that's one half of the accusation, what's the other half? <laughs> right, the scandalous implication, not implication, bald statement that, uh, of exactly how much more attractive his lady is than she. Um, now, so this is what he's brought to trial for? Both things? How does that work, Robin? Didn't they bring the trial for treason or something? That's what Arthur's County Yeah, now... Treason is certainly at issue here. Um, uh, I, you may not know this, but uh, when you commit adultery with the queen, treason, high treason against the crown, is what you are charged with. Um, and this is not just like because he's the king and it's his personal prerogative. This is a massive political issue. Why is this a massive political issue? Yeah, Stephanie? Yeah, this is, this is a huge national issue if the queen is unchaste or thought to be unchaste. And this is, by the way, what, one of the implications from the beginning. One of the, it's not just that, you know, Landval has sort of high moral standards and is like, oh, I cannot condone these scandalous carryings on of the queen. But he recognizes this, is, this, this creates political chaos. I mean, this is really bad on several levels, not just a sort of abstract moral level, um, but... When the queen is known to be unchaste, and, and, and of course as unchaste as, as Guenera is in this poem, that's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Because yes, it questions, there can be no undoubted legitimate heir if the queen is known to be unfaithful. Because then, even if you have what would appear to be an orderly succession, there could easily <coughs> arise people who would say, well, that, you know, the, 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 the prince is not the king's son. Now, of course, Arthur and Guinevere never have children, so uh, you know, it turns out not to be an issue. But, um, but anyway, that's why, that's why adultery with the queen is not only problematic in the moral ways that adultery tends to be problematic in a Christian society, but it's also treason against the crown. And you may remember, this is Lanval's first reaction. When Guinevere propositions him, the first thing he says is, I would not be a traitor. Now, I think we should hear a kind of a double force there. Um, that is, we may be thinking of his own lady, that he's not going to be unfaithful to his lady. He also is, at least in some sense, married, has certainly made vows to her and would be unfaithful to her, and not just to Arthur, if he were uh, to give in to Guinevere. But, of course, also, that's literally true. Like, he's saying, I, I would not be a traitor against my king. 
by sleeping with you, which apparently doesn't bother many other people, but Landval draws the line at high treason. And, and that's, so that, that's one of the first things that, that, that Guinevere is reacting to. So yes, it is normal, it's not an exaggeration, that this charge, the, the idea that he has propositioned Guinevere, would be a, a, a treasonous offense and be a capital offense. Both would be. So that's normal. The second part of it, the whole beauty comparison thing, is a little bit more idiosyncratic. Um, that's not in the normal legal code. That is, like, you said your girlfriend is more beautiful than the queen, therefore death, certain death <laughs> awaits you, unless you can justify that boast. That, that's a little bit more unusual. Well, I mean, and that might, those might not be formal charges, but that seems to be the bigger deal for Arthur. When he brings it up, he, he says, foul traitor, how dare you say that your love's most loathsome attendant is more attractive than my wife. Oh, and you try to see <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem, both to Arthur and to Guinevere, uh, that that's really the big deal. I mean, of course, to Guinevere it would make sense because she knows that, in fact, to be the only wrong that he's done. She knows full well that he didn't proposition her. But, but yeah, I agree, even to, even to Arthur. You get this bizarre sense, like the attempt to commit actual high treason and sexually you know, <laughs> just like seduce his wife is the lesser of the two charges. Why? If that doesn't make legal sense, and I don't think it does make legal sense, what other kind of sense does it make? How does it seem to function within, within this story? Can we make sense of it in the context? Baskin? When you get back to the whole uh, deal that he made with uh, Tremor in the beginning, uh, because it's like, you know, uh, He's pretty much on trial now for, in a way, breaking out of the beginning. Uh, and I think it goes back to the whole, you know, what's been best. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. It's, it's one of the major things at stake. I mean, he has broken that vow, right? Uh, and he is in the, the really ironic position of, on the one hand, being called to a now, he's in trouble with her for breaking his vow, of course, as he, as he knew he would be, as would make sense for him to be. Now, ironically, he's also being charged, for, uh, being charged by Arthur's court uh, for breaking that vow. And I say that's ironic because why did he do it? What was, why did he break his promise not to boast of her? What motivated him? We talked about this last time, sort of why she emphasized that. Because one of your... Provoked him with saying that he doesn't like women. Right. And then we talked about the um, idea of insecurity um, and someone's reason to boast being um, because there's some lack of confidence um, surrounding the situation. Right, right. His, his focus on himself, to build himself up and it, in the eyes of other people, right? That he could not take uh, just, he couldn't take being looked down upon, he couldn't take being, uh, being attacked and criticized. He had to, in the end, 
support himself, right? That is, justify himself in her eyes by boasting, right? Don't think that I don't have a lady. Don't think that I'm a pedophile just because I don't, you don't see me going around with a lady. Um, he cares what she thinks about him. He cares what the court thinks about him. So he's trying to sort of recover himself or build himself up in their eyes. But, of course, ironically, it's that is what puts him on trial for the court. So it's, this is not a question of his sort of choosing preference at Arthur's court versus pre- the preference of his lady, or at least if he tried that, it failed, right? Because he ends up, he ends up losing both. Yeah, Marta? Well, and I think um, in Longfall's um, defense, it's not like he hasn't had moments where he's been lowly before. It's, you know, he had years of being poor and a beggar, and he just took it, took it like a man. But um, Gwen, there's something about Guinevere that gets under his skin, so I think that's important to remember that it's her. That's yes. her. <laughs> yes, I agree. It is because, I mean, I think that we... He's been back at court now for a while, and he was gone for a while. Quite a bit of time passes in this poem. That's an, actually another way in which it differs uh, from the original. We don't get that same sense of time, like seven years have gone by and all this. We, we, don't, we don't get these clear markers of time or much sense that this has taken such a long time as it does here. Um, so yeah, it's been a while that he's been back, and he's not had a lady the whole time. This would, judging from what we can see of the context of other romances and things at this time, already make him kind of deviant socially. We can see the, you know, the, the, the dancing that they do and the knights and ladies mixing and things. He's, he doesn't have a lady that he champions. We know that that's important even from the challenge of Sir Valentine the Giant, right? Uh, you know, if you, if you have, a, have a good lady who is, who is excellent, then come to defend her honor and fight me. Um, so we can see that that's important. We see him fend that off there. But, but yeah, so presumably, he would already have been facing a certain amount of alienation, you know, of, of being and being seen to be deviant from the rest of the court or outside socially in certain ways. But, yeah, Guinevere, that's, in the end, where he draws the line, right? That's, that's, that's the last straw that he can't take. Um, what else? What else do you notice from the trial? Yeah, okay. Um, when he's accused of sleeping with the queen, the King Arthur sort of confronts all the knights, and they kind of can't deny that she's done this before. <coughs> yeah. This is another interesting thing. Not only is the accusation of adultery with the queen or attempted adultery with the queen seem to be treated like less of a deal by Arthur than the other, but when the other knights testify, like, uh, okay, the fact is, she really is, uh, we, you know, we don't know how to put this, but uh, let's just say we find it entirely plausible, his story, that she approached him, okay? We think we got, we, we probably got to side with Lanval on this one. Arthur does not react. And he's like, oh, but he still said that her lady was more beautiful than the queen. We must answer that charge. It's like, didn't we just like legally establish that Guinevere is cheating on you? Should, shouldn't we? Isn't that kind of a bigger deal at this point? Apparently not <laughs> to Arthur. So that's, um, and you know, in some ways, I think this is kind of an awkwardness. The 
Accusation of adultery question is, is, is treated much more slightly uh, in the original text. When Marie de France tells this story, Guinevere mentions that, but the, the focus is very little on that, and there's certainly no legal discussion of it at the trial. By the time we get to the trial, it's just completely forgotten, and we're only talking about the comparative beauty. Um, our, 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 our English poet, Thomas Chester, he said, tells us his name is there at the end, uh, Chester says that he makes a bigger deal of it, right? And he brings it into the trial, which makes it kind of awkward. Like, okay, but we're just going to drop that. I guess, what, will there be an investigation later on? Does Arthur not care? I don't know. But, but it certainly is not any longer the issue. Now the issue is just that boast. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Jordan. Um, the footnotes have to do suggest there is a legal basis for the insult thing. It's clearly not, you know, as big a deal as the, the whole treason thing, from what they say, but apparently it's explains it against the king and the soul's clean in any way. Which, I mean, that's, that's, you know, not huge, but... Yeah, no, it's definitely squishier than the, than the adultery thing. Way squishier. It's not another way of cheating on him. I imagine he wants to punish anyone he, gets, he has a chance to punish. Right, though one possibly could expect that his ire would be directed less towards Landfall than towards his queen at that point. But, um, especially since, again, he's been almost exonerated from that chief, from that chief accusation. Yeah, I agree. I mean, sure, you, you know, there, are, there, there can be legal consequences to insulting the king, which is pretty much what it amounts to. I mean, I've, we've been talking about the boast and you know, the beauty comparison, but of course what he has said is not just, my, my lady is more beautiful than the queen. He's couched that comparison as insultingly as he can, right? The loathliest servant of my lady is more beautiful than the queen, is what he has said. And that's the, you know, like the, that, that lothlochest word gets repeated a lot in the trial, right? It, it, is, it is the insult contained in that that, um, that really keeps coming up. What's at stake for Arthur here? Why does he care so much? What's this? How do we understand this, Kelly? Um, it seems that Arthur has given up so much to be with Guinevere because she's really, really beautiful. And if we can't establish that she's in fact faithful to him, then all he has is that she's—he has the most beautiful lady in you know all the kingdom. And if Lancelot, is, or I'm sorry, Lawnfall <laughs> is um, is challenging that, then he's undermining that hierarchy, I guess. Yeah. There is a hierarchy thing, especially the terms in which the insult is placed make it explicitly, so evoke hierarchy explicitly, like the lowest member of her hierarchy is higher than the highest member of your hierarchy, as far as the ladies are concerned, rated by beauty, as ladies almost always are rated by beauty. Um, but yeah, I mean, we saw at the beginning, with his rejection of Guinevere, that is not her, his rejection of her advances, because she's making any yet, uh, but of his... his uh, sort of distancing himself from her and his kind of separation from the Arthurian court in consequence, we see him already sort of choosing between those two worlds, right? Okay, if this world, the Arthurian world, now means that, if, if, if this is now, this, this, this new identity is being grafted into the, to the Arthurian world that it, through his marriage of Guinevere, I'm not going to have any part of that anymore. And, I'm, and, the, and that's where he ends up then being joined to that other world, right? So now when he comes back, he's not left the fairy world, 
He's not left Tremor behind and come back to Arthur in the way that he left Arthur in order to find her. So in him, we have both of these worlds still together. Um, and the, the vehemency with which he rejects that does seem to be a big part of the deal. That is, I, Arthur does seem to see, everyone seems to see, the terms in place here. This is one, one world against another. And of course, the other world, which they don't even see, or even really know anything about, or in fact understand at all even that he's talking about another world exactly, right? That is, all he says is, my girlfriend is really beautiful, so beautiful that even her servants are more beautiful than the queen. And Gawain clearly doesn't understand what's going on, right? Even though he's on, he's very sort of good-naturedly on Lanval's side, right? When he sees the servants coming... He's immediately, that must be her, right? I see this really, really beautiful woman. Actually, the whole pack of really beautiful women coming. Surely, surely your lady is among them. No, 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 no. No, you don't understand. And that's the moment when they start arriving. That's the moment when to everybody it becomes clear. What we have here is not just a comparison among these women seen equally. Instead, we have very clearly the arrival of a foreign court, right? The maidens coming in advance to prepare her way and to, you know, to deck the chambers and, and to get everything ready for the arrival of a foreign dignitary. And Arthur to receive her as one would receive a foreign dignitary. And it's then that we clearly, see, that everyone clearly sees what is at stake here is the, are these two, these two different poles. Um, this is not just something else coming into Arthur's world. Um, yeah, Robbie? I just have a question. I don't know if it's said in the text or not, but how did he know that she would be coming? Because Lampal just says, she's riding you, and that's it. So how did he know that too? He doesn't. He doesn't. Um, yeah, he seems... Well, what's his reaction when he's arrested? What's his reaction? I think there are several interesting things that we can see about how he responds to the arrest and to the, uh, the, the, the specific charges that are placed against him, the experience of being on trial. When is he arrested? What is the moment when he is arrested? What has just happened when he is arrested? I think it's, um, he's discovered that um, all the gifts she's given him have either vanished or decreased in quality to something less than jewels and gold. And, of course, Gifra has taken the horse and threw it away. Right, right. Gifra is gone. <laughs> yeah, he goes back to his room uh, after the party. You know, they've been out dancing and stuff. He goes back to his room uh, with the plan and hope to summon his lady, um, as he usually does. But she doesn't come. And Gifford is gone, and the horse is gone. Yeah, and all, all, all. So he's just realized, that's it, right? I am, well, I was going to say being punished, but it's not exactly punishment. I mean, he has broken their agreement. And he recognizes this is the consequence. And in that moment, he's arrested and hauled before the king when, he's re- when he recognizes that he's already been separated. From his lady. And of course, now we have the 
the ironic moment which builds the dramatic tension, right? Now that he has cut himself off from his lady is now the time when in order to save his life, he has to produce his lady, which, of course, he couldn't have done anyway. It would have been the worst possible breaking of his previous oath to, like, trot her out like a sideshow, right? And now... Land falls, sexy girlfriends, <laughs> right? Uh, that's, I mean, that would have been the worst kind of boast that he could have made. Um, but of course now, she won't even come to him in private anymore. Um, so he's totally cut off from her, but forced to produce her. So yeah, he can't do this, and he seems to have n- no expectation that he's going to do this. Therefore, what does he do? Does he... Does he just, like, does he confess to the charges? What does he do? Does he back down? How does he respond to this? Because, again, I think that we can see some interesting things here, both with his relationship to the Arthurian court and his relationship to Triamor's court. Jordan? He kind of seems to, uh, <coughs> I don't know what good word, a good single word is, so I'll use other several along. He becomes less animated and less... Involved in things is that once the dream was removed, there's no real purpose. Like, he might as well be killed because his life is gone. And uh, also, in response to the earlier comment about coming right against his reaction, it's when she actually shows up and says, Hail, he said, come into my land on Swayther, shame meet of me, Bella's better, yet that lady Walter. And that's actually when she shows up at the gate. Previously to that, he's just like, No, they are not, her. you know, you, you guys, <laughs> you're trying to cheer me up. <laughs> yeah, it's not working. It's not working. Yes, yes, good. He, it's only when he sees her that he seems to show hope. Um, yeah, he doesn't show much hope, and he, he does seem to be, you know, fairly resigned to, you know, being executed. Or Now, once the whole thing about actually um, turns out, uh, Your Majesty, your wife is, um, well, Landfall's probably innocent of this one they that that's when he changes the sentence right at first we were talking about execution at that point he's like okay okay exile though exile let's exile him for for his boast and his insult to the queen but exile is kind of an ironic penalty under the circumstances right Mr. Like, yeah, I've done the exile thing, right? I initiated the exile thing before. And one has to think that for several reasons, he wouldn't particularly care to stick around, actually. Right? I mean, how much worse are things now than when he separated himself from the court in the first place? Right? He, he, he seemed to sort of distance himself from Guinevere and from Guinevere's Arthurian court previously on far less, uh, with far less reason than he has now. To do so. Um, so, so yeah, the whole the whole exile thing is not exactly you know the most horrible threat hanging over his head right now. Um, but notice that he does not deny it. That is, he maintains what is strictly the truth. He's being accused of two things: you tried to seduce Guinevere and you insulted her. And he remains strictly honest in his response. 
no, I am innocent of attempting to seduce Guinevere. I wouldn't have her on a plate. But I am guilty of insulting her. In fact, I will fulsomely repeat the insult in front of you all right now, and I stand by it. It is true. Can I produce her? Can I prove it? No, but it's true, and I'd say it again. I shouldn't have said it the first time, but having said it once, I'll say it again. And that's interesting. What does that show us? What does that show us about him? We talked about what his boast shows us about him. What does that show us about him? Liz? Yeah. Yeah. Having once made the boast, he shouldn't have made the boast, but having once made the boast, he's not going to further insult her by backing down. And not only would it be further insulting her, it would be for, it would be continu- for him to change his story now would be continuing the mistake he made before, right? Will, what were you thinking? I was going to say that whatever else might be, you know, boastful, proud of he is not. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he does not seem to be, I mean, when we saw this from the beginning, right? You know, he's not going to, he doesn't actually seek his own aggrandizement generally, right? He just slipped up that one time when, as Marta said, Guinevere <laughs> pushes his buttons, right? It's not even just the situation that makes it happen. It's her. Um, but yeah, he, if he were to back down now, if he were to say, no, I, you know, oh, um, the thing about my lady, I shouldn't have said that. I was, yeah, not true. I'm sorry. Now, he would be denying her for the sake of his own advancement. Right? So we see him now sticking it out because he's no longer seeking himself. He doesn't care. He knows that it condemns him. He knows that there is no defense because he can't produce her. And so therefore, he is accepting his condemnation by reiterating his boast and also sticking by her. So that's nice. Now he also... he. The, so he, he, he passes the test on his first opportunity to wimp out and deny his loyalty to her and to aggrandize himself at her expense. He did that the one time. He has another chance to do it, and he doesn't the second time at the trial. He has two more chances to save himself dishonestly and disloyally to her. Do you remember that? One of those. Taylor? Is it one of them, um, the fact that he had the opportunity to claim that one of her ladies was, one of Treymore's ladies was Treymore? Yeah, yeah. Gawain gives him that chance twice, right? Because oh, this is not just, hey, I could take that as a way out. He is offered a way out on a platter, right? I mean, Gawain says to him, wow, look at that lady coming. If one of those is your lady, you are totally getting off on this trial, right? I mean, you are completely, like, you would be found innocent if you said to one of those ladies, because, wow, they are so much more beautiful than the queen. No question. Trial over. And he says, no, no, I've never seen them before. I have no idea who they are. So he could have. He could have done that. But again, his only motivation to do that would be to preserve himself. 
it's a little hard on him calling, you know, get yourself off at a major trial, putting that in the category of self-aggrandizement, right? I mean, that's a little, that's a little unfair. Uh, there's a little more at stake here than just boosting your image uh, with other people. Um, but again, but, but he doesn't do that. One thing I want to clarify, um, I was really interested in the discussion board, the, uh, the exchange that several of you were having about, about loyalties and his political loyalties between the Arthurian court and the, uh, the court of Triamor. Um, I thought that thread was, was sort of particularly interesting and relevant to the stuff that we were talking about today, so I wanted to, I wanted to comment on that. Um, I think that you're right uh, to see, the several of you who are talking about it, you're right to see a kind of a political implication here um, when he leaves Arthur's court and goes there and the fact that she's carrying, he's carrying her banner uh, as well as riding her horse and being accompanied by her mega squire. Um, it's also, that's, that's true. But I don't think that we sh should be seeing this as disloyalty politically to Arthur. I don't think he's done anything bad, anything wrong in that way. Um, the way that feudalism is a two-way street that is, you swear an, an oath of fealty to your lord, but your lord also swears an oath to you. Um, and you hold lands, you know, so your lord gives you lands, he gives you a fief, and you hold those lands under his authority. Um, if you don't have, if he takes those away from you, you don't have anything to be loyal for anymore. That is, if he breaks it, you, you, you don't have to keep it anymore. And you can also, for this reason, have feudal oaths to more than one person at the same time. You could be given a fief by two different rulers. And then, of course, it's possible, theoretically, that those two oaths could put you uh, at cross-purposes at various points, especially if your lords are not agreeing with each other. Uh, but if you hold lands from one king and hold other lands from another king, you, you, would, you could swear oaths to both of them. Um, this was, a, this was exactly the awkward situation that a lot of the Norman lords of England were put in at the very beginning of the 13th century. Um, after the Norman conquest, of course, the, uh, William the Conqueror uh, and his barons, obviously, were major, he was the Duke of Normandy, and they were major landholders in Normandy um, before they conquered England. So the major Norman families in England in the first century of Norman rule had major lands in Normandy and lands in England, and this was no problem because the same person was King of England and Duke of Normandy, that is William and his successors. But at the beginning of the 13th century, the King of France decided that he'd had enough of that um, and demanded that the King of England as Duke of Normandy swear fealty to him as King of France, and he refused, and the King of France then annexed Normandy and sacked it. Um, and said, okay, Normandy is mine now. Nobody can hold lands here and, st and still say that they, you know, that they hold these lands under the King of England. These are my lands now. Um, so anyone who has these lands, who wants to keep these lands, has to swear fealty to me instead of to him, because they didn't have any fealty to the King of France. Um, so basically they had to choose. Do they want to keep their English holdings? Do they want to go back to Normandy? Um, and a lot of people split up. That is, there were some families where there were like two sons, one of which went and took the Norman lands and the other of which stayed in England. Um, but basically the decision point had come, which, which one of these they were going to do. And again, that was depending on which lands they kept because now the Norman lands belonged to him and the English lands belonged to him. 
in any case. What we see of Lanfal, he doesn't owe anybody anything when he's a poor beggar living in an orchard and riding out and falling in the mud. Um, he doesn't seem to have any wins. There's another moment in, uh, in a couple other Arthurian stories. At the end, near the end of the, of the Arthurian story, this is in the French Vulgate, uh, and it's... Um, Emily will correct me if I'm wrong. I think Mallory says this too. Gawain gets really mad at Arthur when Arthur is going to carry out the execution of the queen. When he finally, evidence is brought to him that Lancelot and Guinevere are sleeping together uh, and he says, okay, well, I'm going to have to burn Guinevere at the stake because she's guilty of treason. That's what you do to women who are guilty of treason. So I'm going to do this. And Gawain says, this is a horrible thing to do. I totally disagree with this. And what he does, Gawain divests himself of his lance. He says, I'm, gonna, I'm severing ties with you, Arthur. Um, and in order to, but of course, he can't, just, he can't just walk away and be like, I'm not going to obey you anymore if he's still his, his vassal, if he still holds lands under Arthur. So he says, I'm giving you back every, every acre of land you have ever given me. I hold nothing under you. And therefore, I am walking out of your court and never coming back. Now, this only lasts about, like, six hours, actually, <laughs> before Gawain is back because the situation changes right after this. Does the, divi- the divestiture happen in Mallory? I can't remember. Yeah, he storms out, I remember, but I, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the French Vulgate, in Mallory's sources, that he, I feel like he has the, like a ceremonially divest himself uh, of his fiefs. <coughs> okay, briefly, like the next day, he takes them back again. But, uh, but, but if you do that, you're no longer bound. Lanval, when he leaves the court does seem to disconnect him from Arthur. He certainly does not seem to have any benefits from Arthur's court, hence his poverty. So Lanval is kind of a free agent when he's in the woods and picked up by the fairy queen. So, um, so I don't think that there's a question of his, like now he's, he's, he's breaking a vow to Arthur. Um, you only do that if you try to sort of have your cake and eat it too, if you're speaking. That is, to keep the lands, but break the vow uh, of loyalty to the Lord. But I think it was really interesting, and I think it's really important because we do see that kind, especially here at the end when Lady Triamore shows up at the court, we do see a kind of political situation. As I said, we have like the foreign, the foreign potentate who is coming into town and who is having this meeting with Arthur, and we do have a confrontation of these two different powers and these two different courts, and Landval chooses. No questions. Um, Congratulations, Lanval. You are innocent. You are not going to be exiled. What are you going to do now? I'm going to Fairyland. I'm going to Fairyland. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to exile myself. Right? That's okay. It's okay. I'm just going to carry out the sentence that you would have carried out if I was guilty. Oh, none of this matters. What matters is uh, that I choose her over you if the choice has to be made. And apparently it does because of Arthur's adherence to the queen. Um... What'd you make of Guinevere's blinding? <laughs> that was so cool. This is one of the coolest things in this entire poem. There are, because Marie de France's poem gets picked up and retold in a couple other places, there are other places where you can find Guinevere acting as horribly as this. This poem is not unique uh, for how despicable Guinevere is, though it is in this like thread of unique uniquely horrible Guinevere tradition. But in no other version does 
Guinevere get stricken blind. And the manner of it just blows in her face. And her eyes wither. It's powerful stuff right there. What do you make of it? Why has, uh, why has our man Thomas Chester added that? Any thoughts? Beth? I think it's symbolic of how blind is. It's hard not to go there. I agree. Yeah, she's... she's What's she blind to? In what sense is she blind? Uh, <laughs> her own value. She thinks she's so much more important than she is. Uh, so much more desirable. Yeah, good. I agree. I think that's a really neat way of thinking about it. The kind of, the kind of self-absorption, right? That she, she really seems to believe that she is that great, right? She seems to be she's deceived. Remember what we were talking about way back on the, I said way back on the first day of class, you know, like Wednesday, feels like like a year ago, but anyway, uh, about the the relationship between appearances and realities in this poem, we can see that as a sort of a theme from the beginning, and we, you know, I was talking at the time about the gap in the queen between her appearances and her reality. She's very beautiful, and she's great, and she's sort of the pinnacle of the Arthurian court once they're married, but you know, she's, her, her, her inward parts do not reflect, you know, her character does not reflect uh, the outside. She, however, in a sense, I mean, and I, I agree with Beth here, sort of seems to buy, or doesn't seem to see that, right? She seems to believe that she really is the greatest and that this doesn't, really doesn't matter. You remember she does call it upon herself, right? She do, it's not a random thing that, the, that Triamor does when she gets there. Um, Guinevere makes something that is almost like uh, a rash vow or a rash boast um, when she's leveling the accusations against L'Enfant. Um This is line 805. During the beginning parts of the trial, all in fair they mad proferinga that Lownfall should his layman bringa his head hegan to lie. Then side of the quaina without lazinga, if he bringeth a fairer thinga, put out mean iron grey. Oops, <laughs> right, and she does. Uh, now, Guinevere presumed we didn't mean that literally, but. But I think we can see, I mean, she boasts of herself here. And she is compelled to abide by the terms of her boast. Well, I was also thinking, this could be more than a punishment. This could be a correction. I mean, she's blinding her to material things. Mm -hmm. And this might make her better as a person in the long run might make Guinevere realize that it's not all about being the most beautiful and being the best, and might make her realize that it's not true. Yeah, and also, hey, stop uh, chasing after other knights, right? Yeah, 
like that, maybe it will help that too. Maybe it will restrict uh, her extracurricular activities. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there does seem to be there does seem to be something corrective about not not simply punitive, not simply vengeful. As she is, she keeps using the language of vengeance. She wants to be a reka on him. Right? I, I want you to. I, 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 I just want to get back at him. I want to see him suffer for what he did. And I agree, I don't think that we necessarily see Triamor responding in kind to her. Um, Especially since, technically, she brought it on herself. Though, again, presumably she didn't mean it literally. Um, Yeah, Bessie? That's actually kind of lovely, right? Yeah. Here, I will now put you in the world where you are the, the most beautiful. You're, you're now like, the, you're beautiful. You're more beautiful than anything you can see, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I like that. Here's the, like the perfect fulfillment of your, of your sad little world, Guinevere. Um, or perhaps revelation of what her world is really already like, right? And this again, coming back to Beth's first comment about her sort of being already, in a sense, blinded. No, I like it. I, I think that I think that's great. I think that works really well. Um, we should, before we go, uh, talk about Landval's final fate. That is, he chooses. When given the choice, he chooses, right? Gifra comes up with the horse, and he's like, yes, and he gets on the horse and follows it, right? So he chooses no question. He's not staying. He's riding off to ferry with her. Where do they go? This is a trick question. The Isle of Olyrune, of course. This is a little perplexing. Uh, Marie de France says Avalon, which is the traditional place where ferries are located, and we'll see that coming up in other places. But um, uh, the Isle of Olyrune is actually an island off the coast of Brittany, um, and I, I, I don't, yet it's clear, so one possible thing would be here that, like, Chester didn't like the idea of, like, oh, they're going off to some, like, you know, island that, like, doesn't exist in the real world, so he gives them a real geographic, like, bona fide geographical loca- location to go to, you know, like, they have a, it's not that, you know, Lanfell and Triamore don't have a, you know, an actual postal address anymore, like, you can find them on the Isle of Olyrune. But I don't think so, because we're told that he goes to Fiery. I mean, Chester doesn't make any, any bones about the fact that he is in Fiery with her. So I, I, he doesn't seem to be squeamish about that. Um, does this sort of suggest sort of mystical associations that they had with that particular isle? I'm not really sure. It seems quite possible. Um, but anyway, it's sort of a curiosity in some, in some sense. One thing that I love about the end of this poem, and it's in Marie de France too, and Chester keeps it, is that sort of the, the little sort of summary of the end that is like, now, like looking back, here's what this, here's what this story was about. Um, at the beginning of the last stanza, Thus Launfall, without in fable, that noble knicht of, of the rune table was tak into, far, into fiery. This is the story of how the noble knight, Launfall, was taken into fairy. I think it's, I mean, we've seen, like we saw Herodotus taken into fairy, right? And I also really like the discussion on the d- discussion board about the, 
difference between Herodotus' taken, being taken into Ferry and Launfal's being taken. And I think it's, ex it's especially uh, interesting here, right? Uh, he, he went of his own volition. In fact, in this version, he rides on his own horse. In Marie de France, it's really charming. He's being held uh, in the trial. And they let him go. They're like, okay, you're free to go. So he goes running out on foot. She gets back on her horse and goes riding out. And he, like, ambushes her by the door. So he, like, jumps up on a mounting block right next to the door. And as she rides by, he jumps onto the back of her horse and is like, see ya, and off he goes. So there you can see in Marie even more strongly foregrounds this sort of tension between going and being taken to ferry, right? He doesn't actually... Now, of course, even here, though, he's still riding a ferry horse, right? So you could still say that there's, a, there's still some parallel there. Um, but goodness no, nobody ever went more willingly to ferry than Lanfal does here at the end of this, um, or more of his own volition. And yet this is still characterized in the end as being taken to Fairia. Uh, and I just, I think that that's in itself kind of interesting. Um, and, but once a year, you can still joust with him if you want. This is not in Marie. He rides off into the distance, probably to Avalon the end. But it's not the end here. Once a year, to keep his armor from rust, right? He's got he's to keep his hand in as a jouster. You can hear him, and, and the, the, the hearing still has this sort of mysterious fairy quality. You can hear the sound of his horse, right? And maybe you can meet him and challenge him to joust. Right? It's, it's, it's not just, but once a year he still showed up at the Arthurian court to go to, like, the major tournament. It's not quite like that. You can go out and still find him once a year, if you want to, to joust with him. But he's now part of fairy, and therefore the encounter with him is kind of like encounters with fairy. In our last 60 seconds, general thoughts, now that we've read two of these medieval fairy stories, general things that you notice, trends. I said before at the beginning that I didn't want to, you know, start off by lecturing about the, you know, what we believe to be true about fairies and all that sort of thing in the Middle Ages. I wanted us to sort of see empirically. What do you notice so far? Brittany? Uh, the appearance of fairies is heavily detailed in both. Good. Yeah, it, what they look like is a big deal, and what they look like is pretty similar. Wealthy, beautiful. Two very queer trends. Radiant. Yes. And I agree. We've, we've never yet met a fairy and not had a long physical description. Especially compared to the physical des description we get of other things, which is very little, usually. Yeah? Good. Good, yes. We have this place, which is usually, in both cases... Communal, it's like we don't, you don't just meet a stray single fairy in the middle of the woods. In fact, have we ever seen a single fairy by him or herself? I don't think so. They're always in gangs, sometimes cities, right? Always large parties. I mean, ha seriously, have we seen fewer than 60 fairies in one place at any time? So, I mean, I think that that's interesting, especially when juxtaposed with the forest, right? You have to totally separate, go out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the forest, and that's where you'll meet huge cities or enormous throngs of fairies, apparently. 
Um, so I, I, I agree. I think both of those are really interesting things. Will? Okay, good. Yeah, we still don't, like, we still don't, we still, we don't know why the fairy king wanted Herodotus exactly. Um, we don't know, I mean, we can sort of assume, but almost all those assumptions are based upon assuming that his motivations would be like a human being's motivations, which don't necessarily seem to be fair. Uh, and yet, why, why does Triamor do what she, we have even less reason? I mean, she says that she loves him more, and I guess, like, he's worthy, in a sense, but Certainly at the end, what we see at the end of this poem is not his worthiness being rewarded. He is being rewarded despite his unworthiness. He has shown himself unworthy. He has screwed up. He does not deserve to keep her. And he certainly doesn't deserve for her to do what she does. Um, so yeah, I agree. It's, still, it's, a, it's a little bit mysterious. Why did she take him in the first place? Why does she come back after he's broken his vow? Um, and we don't know. Yeah, good. Okay. When people go into fairy, they come back definitely changed. Herodotus didn't say anything for the rest of the film, and Landfall goes and actually sort of becomes a fairy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree. This, and that is an interesting way to think about Herodotus, too, because we, you know, and, and, and to think about her silence for the rest of the poem. Um, are we to assume that she's back to normal and the reason she doesn't talk is that you know it's kind of like unremarkable like we're just resuming where she left off or that she is so changed that we don't hear from her i think it, i think that that's an interesting question yes it does certainly seem to have certainly seem to have an impact yeah okay and it always Yeah, I mean, he's... And he chooses that. He knows himself to think that he chooses for himself by defending her. Yeah. The queen, where he could have chosen, okay, I choose support, but he, like, throws in his camp with her, so... Yeah, I, I agree. There is something throughout the trial, there's something that feels like tautology about the whole thing, right? Um as we can see from the ending. Like, the outcome of the trial is literally meaningless. Um, in that way, if that's the sort of final climax of the poem, it's deeply anticlimactic. Um, Hooray, you're, you're, you don't have to be exiled. Um, yeah, if he's, if she, when she comes back for him, if, if she doesn't come back, he's exiled. If she does come back, He's exiled. <laughs> I mean, then he's going to exile. And he's choosing exile both. It's not even like, well, he'll be forced versus choosing. No, he's choosing it both ways. It's like, is it a happy exile or a sad <laughs> exile? But, um, but that's, the, that's the chief difference. Yeah. All right. I must let you go. Uh, Dame Ragnall for Wednesday. Okay. For next time, read the first half of The Wedding of Sir Gawain and Dame Ragnall, where we'll meet a guy with a funny name and a strikingly unattractive lady. Fun for the whole family. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.